It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Eric. Listen in as they discuss the 2013 film Prisoners. Now, when this movie came out, did you have any interest? Did you know anything about it? Or did it kind of fly under your radar? Or Okay, let's take that option. Flew under the radar. Had no idea when this movie came out. Never noticed it. And I'm the kind of person who notices when any significant release typically comes out any year. Nope, not this one. Nope. And, and there's, you know, there's movies, obviously, that I have not seen... But I knew when they came out, I was aware of it. I saw the ads. Nope, this, nothing. Nope, no register at all. Yeah, I was, I was going to say I kind of assumed because I feel like absolutely nobody heard about this movie. And I only knew it because I was paying a lot of attention to Jake Gyllenhaal at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I would look at my IMDb, what's Jake Gyllenhaal doing next? And I'd be like, okay, Prisoner is all. Mm-hmm. Like, look who the director is. And I noticed that he did the same we work with the same director, Denis Villeneuve, around the same time making Enemy. So I was like, okay. Uh, but I wasn't going to the theater at this time, basically at all. So I didn't see this one until it came out on uh, Blu-ray. And I bought Enemy very shortly afterwards. And just that, seeing these two in such close succession was kind of like, wow, this this director. This guy's like off the charts. For... Which one came first? Was this first? Before Enemy? Uh, this one came out first, but Enemy was uh, made first. Okay. Yeah, and they were working on that together when Denis was like, hey, I've got this this script that I found, Prisoners, like, you know, I, I really want you for this role. And so that's why he uh, persuaded Jake Gyllenhaal to come on for this. But yeah, so I, I, did, I don't remember if there was any sort of, uh, like, trailers or anything that I noticed. It was only because of IMDb that I ever heard of this one. So <laughs> it's kind of, I was curious if you heard of it. Yeah, I completely missed it. Um, I don't. What's the kid's name? Um, the actor uh, who plays Hugh Jackman's son. Oh yeah, I don't know that guy's name, but I know he's popped up a lot these days, like a Netflix show, right? I had no idea he was in something going back as far as this, 2013. Uh, I guess his name is Dylan Vignette. I never knew his name, but um, oh, I... <laughs> so I had no idea he was in stuff as far back as 2013, but. If you don't know who he is, Google it, and you'll recognize his face immediately. He has not aged <laughs> from 2013 to current day. He he is stuck in time as, as looking like a high school kid. And so you if you if you know what 13 Reasons Why is, then you know then you, then you would definitely recognize him. Yeah, I, I recognized him right away, but I I couldn't remember what what the show was except for that my partner watched it. So 
<laughs> I thought season one was brilliant. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, Deep Breath, he showed up in that, that horror movie. So now I know how your relationship started with the movie. What made you bring it up now, this week? Um, well, we we just decided to record something. We didn't really have anything kind of uh, brewing. And I figured, you know, Dune's coming out next week. Is it next week or the week after? It's a 20-something, I think. At least in the United States. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I just, I was thinking, you know, this is the movie that made me a fan of this director. I'd love to go back and revisit it. I've not seen it since that viewing back in 2014 or 2013. I don't remember which year it was. And so I just thought it'd be a fun excuse for us to, you know... And I'd figure that you hadn't seen it, because <laughs> no one that I know who likes Denis Villeneuve have seen this one, so I figured it'd be a chance to introduce you to it as well. So that's kind of where my, my head was at. Got it. Got it. And then Denny, I think my relationship with him, which is a lot younger or fresher than yours, I think the way it went for me was... Blade Runner was on my radar far out before it came out. Like, who knows, a year Mm. before it came out or something. You know, Blade Runner 2049 was on my radar. And I think that's when I looked at, like, who's this guy? Um, Being, I mean, I don't even know how to say it now. I I usually know how to say it when I'm looking at it. Vianneve? Yeah, because it's French-Canadian, I think it's pronounced Villeneuve. Because they're weird with the, with the... Oh, is that how you say it in French-Canadian? I think so. I, It's weird how the pronunciations and spellings with French-Canadian shit. See, <laughs> so. I get screwed up because, you know, I have a little Spanish background as far as language. And so it's... I, I can't get the Spanish version of the name out of my head, which would be like Villanueva. <laughs> and so then it just screws me up um, with, like, the French. Um, but anyway... So this is probably like a year or several months before Blade Runner came out, and I, but I knew he was going to be the director. So then I think that's what caused me to watch Arrival, because I did not watch Arrival, you know, initially. Oh, interesting. I think it's because I knew Blade Runner was coming down the road. So then I watched Arrival, and I thought, oh, okay, okay. I I don't. It's not my favorite movie ever, but it was it was very good. It was. Much better than I would have thought. Um, I think that, I think that's why I didn't watch Arrival because it didn't really catch me. Um, mm. I mean, upon release. Uh, but then I sought it out specifically to see the director in action, and I thought, oh yeah, okay, this is very promising. I would like to see this person who did Arrival do Blade, the Blade Runner sequel. And then if you know me, you know I adore the Blade Runner sequel. It was my first or second favorite movie that year. Um, easily yeah stunning stunning work and i was always concerned because i'm not necessarily a blade runner fan but i know that that movie is in its way a great movie even if i don't necessarily love it and so i was like oh denis like you're putting yourself in a really dangerous spot fucking picking up the mantle for blade runner but he just knocks it out of the park love that and then if you also know me you'll know besides blade runner the reason why Denis is like an easy fit for me is because um, to my eye it's very in the wheelhouse visually um, of the, of Nolan and his work and of course Kubrick and so 
Anything that even loosely fits into that category visually, yeah, there's a good chance I'm going to be in. So, so there's that. Um, oh, but just out of curiosity, did you see Sicario at all in that that mix? Did that movie was that on your radar at all? <laughs> that was the next one I was going to watch after I watched Arrival, um, and I <laughs> I've watched the first 15 minutes like three or four times. And thought it was amazing, and never been able to mm-hmm. carry through and watch the rest of the movie, famously. That's fair, but that yeah, that's another excellent yeah. one. It's really, really great. Stuff. It's ridiculous, is what it is, because Sicario <laughs> was like when UHD format came out. Sicario was like my third or fourth purchase on UHD, and yet I still oh, have wow. not finished the movie. And even though I'm so captivated. By the opening 15 minutes. I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> well, you still got some time before Dune. Maybe we can fit it in. I'd, I'd love to talk some more Villeneuve. And I'll just say, um, from Prisoners on, I've seen everything he's done, but I've never seen his stuff before Prisoners. So I, I really want to catch up with that stuff in the next two weeks before Dune comes out. But I will say, too, from my limited exposure to Denny and his work, as much as I love it, to me, it still feels very Nolan-like in different respects, but still a level lower, if that makes sense, for my own personal taste. It, it's right there, but it's it's like James Mansfield to Mar- Marilyn Monroe. Like, it's the same thing, I'm into it, it's just not Marilyn Monroe, you know what I mean? Yeah, the, they're, in, they're in very different kind of modes that they work in. Like, watching this movie, Prisoners, Nolan wouldn't make a movie anything like this by any means at all. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Uh, in terms of the, the content... This movie is extremely... The emotional trauma. Oh, what are you talking about? The depths about? that the characters go to. He's never made anything like this. Oh my god, this, I, is, this, is, you, this is you and your very low view of Nolan. Uh, we've discussed this before. I'm strictly talking about content, not quality. I think I am talking about content also. But like I said, we've talked about this before on and offline, so I already know where you stand um, with Nolan. So I'm not surprised by what you're saying. But um, I'm talking about content also. <laughs> well, I'll just say right off the bat, because I think our last solo discussion on this podcast was uh, uh, The Prestige. Mm-hmm. And although those two characters go very, very dark, they don't go anywhere near as dark as, say, Keller in this movie. Or not even getting into the, the child killers. <laughs> I mean, I just mean in terms of content, Nolan. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on. I, okay. See, I would say that statement differently. I would say those characters in Prestige do go as dark, perhaps darker but the visceral presentation to match the darkness is much more apparent in Prisoners than it is in Prestige. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I suppose so. Because but... I think their darkness is as deep or darker in Prestige, but you have to, it's in your head. Like, you can mentally... You're mentally aware of it if you do the math in your head, but it's not served to you on a platter as it is in this particular movie. It's much more visceral and actually on screen 
Whereas prestige, it's more in your mind how deep and dark and evil they can be, if that makes sense. Um, I can definitely see what you're saying in terms of the story. Because, yeah, there's some incredible darkness in the story of prestige. It's just, yeah, it's left for the audience to kind of fill it in. Yes, yes. Whereas here, it's like, oh, no, we're going we're gonna to give it to you. And you're going to have to deal with it. But like, that's part of what makes this movie so, at least for me, like emotionally traumatic to watch. Like, I, I had to watch this movie, you know, it, it had been since 2014 or whatever since I watched it because it was very, a very rough watching the first time. And when I watched it again last night again, it was just like, yeah, this movie just puts you in a very dark place <laughs> throughout. Yes. Okay. Now, I agree with you and I agree about this. Um, and, and I'll say more about it later as this as this conversation continues, but, um, and I, okay, because this is, this goes into my category of movies, my list of movies, um, which are really difficult watches, very difficult experiences that make for a good film and a good emotional journey, even if it's a dark one. Uh, but also on this list, um, while the movies all fit those categories or check those boxes, they also check the box of I don't ever want to watch it again. <laughs> or I don't need to watch it again. Mm. I can watch it, yeah, take it as it is, and then go on in my life. And if you want to know a couple other movies, I'm talking to the listeners, a couple of the other movies I have on that list, there's Requiem for a Dream, and there's also <laughs> uh, Graveyard of the Fireflies as well on that same list. Yeah, I will make you watch uh, Requiem from a Dream at some point, because I definitely want to do a podcast for that. Well, <laughs> I've been considering it because the 4K release is imminent, and I'm I'm a little curious about it, but then I'm also like, oh, no, am I really? Do I really want to? Oh, God. Maybe when that comes out, we'll do it. Because Aronofsky's on the, the... I think he's maybe my second or third favorite director still working today. So I... And I've never covered a movie of his, so that that's one, that's one I want to be my first one. Jeez, what, is, what does that say about Caleb? Oh, Aronofsky needs top of the game, top of the game. But, but, but Denis Villeneuve here. Yeah, but I feel like that says something about your soul. Well, I, I, he does some lighter fare. Noah, he knows a little lighter. <laughs> no, it's pretty dark still. Jeez. I guess that's fair, but okay. <laughs> How about prisoners? Yep. Yeah, this is definitely one of those movies that, I mean, in some ways it's just a masterclass in terms of the acting. Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal. I'll say yes with an asterisk. Even Terrence Howard, who I usually feel like turns in relatively mediocre performances, I think delivers a really nuanced and um, hard-hitting performance here. But I think uh, Deacons does some stellar photography throughout this movie and just the kind of command of pace i did not even know it was deacons i am a massive deacons fan and i didn't know this was his work i i i, I know it's in his style but i know that's how Villeneuve is i mean so but i did so i didn't necessarily know this was deacons and um i was actually a little bit surprised because even though it is masterful it doesn't pop the way many of his other works pop um so i i I was very surprised when i found that out after the fact it was deacons 
Yeah, I, I can get what you mean. Because he is the master cinematographer. Yeah, and there are some moments in this movie that are just, like, transcendently good, where you're like, yeah, Deacon's just at the top of his game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, yeah, no, I, I'm curious, then, what, what you thought of this movie. Because I guess you say that it was one that you quite enjoyed, but not one that you go back to. Well, I won't go back to it because... Because... Okay, it's one of those movies, of course, that manipulates you. Um, I mean, all movies are supposed to manipulate you as, as an audience. Um, yes. And this one wants to manipulate you in a certain type of way. And it 100% achieves that, in my opinion. There's no question about that. Um, and, and I'm okay with that. Because, I mean, that's what you're going for, like I just said. You want a movie to manipulate you. But not only is it trying to manipulate you, it's trying to unsettle you and thrill you and put you on the edge of your seat which it does which it does and i'm totally fine with that it's very effective in that way that being said it's like make a bad metaphor now uh you know how uh like something like uh the Matrix or um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. You know how the fight scenes are all achieved like with wires and whatnot? Mm-hmm. And the manipulation game that goes on with this movie on you or me as the audience, it's like, it's masterful, it's effective. I can see the wires. I can see the wires and I can see the wires being pulled. That doesn't bother me. It doesn't bump me, but I'm aware of it. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, in, in what way do you mean? Again, the director and or the, the writer of the story, they want you to feel a certain kind of way. And they, wanna, they want to adjust your mood accordingly as you go through the movie, as you go through the story. And they accomplish it. But I can see the threads and strings being pulled. In, in other words... I can see um, the Wizard of Oz, the facade, but I can also see the man behind the curtain at the same time. Do you see what I'm saying? Whereas sometimes you can be manipulated by a movie or, or novel and you, you're not necessarily aware of the strings or seeing behind the... You're just, you're just there. You're just enveloped. You're in the story. You're along for the ride. I was along for the ride, but I saw the, 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 the strings and levers at the same time. Does that make sense? Do you mean in in terms of, like, um, character directions that they go in? Or just you feel like the hand of the director always present? Sort of. The way they set off different events in the story and different twists and turns, I feel it. I feel it. I feel the deliberateness of it. And, and like, okay, I'm pushing the button for you to get nervous now by executing this in the story. And now I'm going to push this button to to unnerve you and then i'm gonna give you here's the button i push for the red herring you don't know it's a red herring yet but i just push the button for the red herring and then now i push the reveal and you realize it's a red herring and and i i feel it you know what i'm saying like i'm i know it's happening uh i'm still completely along for the ride but i know i'm along for the ride interesting because sometimes a movie or story can just feel organic organic this doesn't feel organic to me. This feels like it's calculated. Um, from the maker's point of view. Yeah, that's funny. See, I was gonna—I knew we were gonna like kind of do 
kind of a Nolan versus Denis Villeneuve kind of debate in this discussion a little bit. But especially this movie, though, because there, there's a lot of Nolan other characteristics, but this is part of it. Yeah, I kept thinking with this movie that things feel a lot more naturalistic versus Nolan. I always feel the hand of the director because Denis Villeneuve can often be a little bit more flashy in his style. With this movie, I felt like he really pulled back and was like, okay, we, the real focus here needs to be the performances. Yes. And um, really needs to be kind of just lingering, but not to look at me, I'm the director kind of style. Well, see, it's yes, yes, yes. And I thought that was a differential between Nolan and some of his dramatic I works. agree with that. I agree with that. But see, here, the levers I've seen pulled aren't, the bom- aren't bombast visually on screen. Um, or some dramatic visual like action scene. It's not that, or special effects, or grand, whatever. No, it's more in the it's more in the screenplay, is where I see the levers being pulled. Mm-hmm. It's more in the plot twists. So, it's not the visual stuff per se. It's 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 reading into the script, um, as an active viewer or participant in the story. That's where I see the levers. Uh, metaphorically not by what's on screen drawing me into it or like like i said like a heightened action sequence or anything it's it's the levers of the plot points and twists and how the story unfolds that that it's set up just right to manipulate me and everyone else uh to feel the way they want us to feel which i'm not that that's not a that's not a critique or a knock I'm just saying, I, I, me personally, I'm conscious of it as I'm watching the movie. Yeah, it, it sounds like you're saying what I feel with when I watch uh, Back to the Future. Whoa. Where I constantly feel the mechanics, where I'm like, I feel like I can see every bit of creative thinking behind this movie as I'm watching it. Like, I feel where everything was set up. I feel like every bit where the director's like, okay, if I do this here, like, this is going to inform this here. Yes. Like, I, I just feel like there's a super yes. artificial nature to that movie is that what you're saying you feel with this yes i feel that about this script and screenplay yes mm. yes that is that yeah, is that's that's one of the reasons that i don't enjoy back to the future as much i still enjoy it i still think it's a quality movie but there's such an artifice to it that i can't i can never get past i get it okay now at first i had no idea where you were going to go with it, but now i know exactly what you're saying <laughs> No, and that's fair. I, I don't necessarily see it. In fact, I was going to say I always felt there was a real naturalism to this movie, partially because of the super convincing performances. But well, see, that's the other thing. That's the other thing, or I wouldn't describe it that way. Now, there are some great performances. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal has to be my favorite. Yes, um, from seeing other reviewers or. Other people's takes, I see a lot of people really, really like Hugh Jackman's take. Some really don't, but some really do. And, and I like it, but to me, it's 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 just coming right out of the Hugh Jackman playbook. Which is not saying it's a, that's a bad thing. It's just yeah. saying that I've seen him deliver this this level multiple times in other movies, so I know he can just he can just conjure this at any moment uh this version of himself acting which is good but it's it's just him going through his motions because he's he's that good at playing something like this 
Um, but Gyllenhaal... Yeah, going to, going through the motions is still excellent for, for yes. a lot of actors. For, yes, for and Hugh Jackman, I think, is in that club. And in a way, you could say that for Gyllenhaal as well. But still, I mean, I don't care, though. Let's just take that off the table. I Gyllenhaal yeah. is by far the most compelling uh, to me as far as acting and everything. And, then this, and also just pondering on the backstory of his character, what's seen and what's not seen. Yes. Or what's known and what's not known is, is interesting to ponder. Um, everyone else is fine, but to varying degrees, I almost see... All the key, um, all the key characters in this, uh, I almost see this movie as a stage production, uh, as a theatrical performance. Mm. And me too. All the main speaking roles, like the top six or seven, whoever they are in this movie, I see them as stage performances, and. And also how they appear, many of them I see as like a stage performance. And what I mean is some of the acting choices and some of their appearance, you know, you know, like when you see the stage makeup up close, it looks ghastly because it's all exaggerated, you know, because it, it's, 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 it's meant to be seen from, you know, 40 feet away, you know, and... I feel like I'm too close to the actors uh, <laughs> that it causes me to see them as being theatrical rather than natural. Does that make sense? <laughs> it, may, it makes sense in my head, but I don't know if it's going to I can't say that I see it, but I, I understand the point, but I, I don't necessarily see it in this movie. So, but. And then there's like two major offenders I can I can pick out right after, or and then there's a third. And that is um, sure. Dano... And spoiler, um, his uh, adoptive mother, I guess you would, or aunt, is she okay? His aunt in the movie, uh, his aunt, mm-hmm. and then third place goes to yeah, full spoilers, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and third place goes to uh, Hugh Jackman's wife, um, uh, Maria Bello. Oh. In that, okay, so so Dano, <sighs> man, I don't know about that guy. I mean, in movies in general. Because at one point, I oh, was taken by him and just thinking, man, this guy is it. But then yeah. I see, oh, he that's all he is, is it. <laughs> that same it in other movies. Um, and so when I saw him and recognized him, I said, oh, great, oh. of course. Dano is playing this role as this weird, um, um, mentally challenged miscreant or who knows what is going on with him. I'm thinking, of course it's Dano. Uh, but it almost feels like central casting for a Dano type. How about we get Dano? Okay. Um, and then, even at the, even when we first see him, his his makeup is too much. It's too much. Um, it's, it's, it's makeup when you know it's makeup. Do you mean when he's, like, beaten to shit? Or do you mean just... No, like... I mean... No, 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 I mean... No, I mean when when we first see him in the movie, uh, and when actually always when we see him. But I mean, even from the very beginning, the first time we see him, or any, I was like, the makeup's too much. I like I can't take this seriously, you know, like 
if we pretend like this was supposed to be real visually it'd be like if you just picked up a suspect in a crime let's say in real life um some police officers pick up this real life person of interest and they take him to the jail let's pretend i work at the jail and i see this guy they're booking him and i'm like okay great here's your suspect or we'll book him and then i'd i'd say why is he wearing makeup I'd, i'd say why is he wearing makeup to look like dot 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 you see what I'm saying? Like, there's no way I could run across his character in real life and go, "What the fuck? Why is there makeup?" Do you see that, or am I just crazy, or are both true? Yeah, I don't. I don't necessarily see the makeup thing. What I see is him and the ant kind of look like they're stuck in like I don't know, like 1995 or something. Like they look like they're not in the same decade as everyone else. They are, and I'm pretty sure that I thought that was kind of intentional. Yes, it's intentional. That's intentional. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, completely, completely. There's... Oh, and that's intentional for multiple reasons. Uh, That's intentional to say they are not people who change the times, but it's also... That's what their characters are all about. Those two in particular. Well, it's not just them, but especially them. It's another way to show that they're stuck in their ways. They're suspended. Like, um, and, you know, once you know the backstory on Dano's character, you understand his he's, his arrested development. Um, and I think that just, that just, um, what do you call it? It drives it home even more. The fact that they look like they were stuck in the 90s or something. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. But I'm just talking about literal makeup. the uh, Theatrical makeup. Television makeup. It's all over Dano. And then his aunt, the whole time I was like, why does she look aged up? Why does she look aged up? Why does she look like someone who's 35? Like, like, uh, like what's her name? Oh, God, on Golden Girls. Um, Sophia. Sophia? Do you know the Golden Girls? Um, yeah, I did watch that show, but no, I, I don't know what, I don't know what you mean there. Do you either. remember Sophia? <laughs> you know, the four Golden Girls? Mm-hmm. Or, like, you know, like, the irony was something, like, the one who appears to be the oldest out of the four. Like, in real life, she was, like, the youngest. But it's because she was aged up. Oh, I didn't know that fact, no. Hmm. Yeah, and I don't know if she was literally the youngest, but she was a lot younger in appearance than she appeared in the in the show. Because they aged her up to seem like the elder, the most... Oh, interesting. The elder of the, of the four. And so that's how I felt about the aunt in this movie, is that she's really aged up. Uh, and at first I was like, is that because they're trying to deceive? Like, is she actually a younger person? But no, that's not, not, that's nothing in the movie. Or I thought, and maybe they did this, but it's not significant. I was like, oh, maybe they're going to show flashbacks of her from 15, 20 years ago. So that's why they age her up for current day. And maybe that actually did happen, but it's not significant enough that, like, she just looks aged up. Um, like really aged up. And that was distracting. And then, again, the third one would be uh, Hugh Jackman's wife, who, when she starts losing it, I'm like, I get it. She's losing it. She's mentally unstable. And she's been attacked by a makeup artist. Did you not notice this? <laughs> no, I, I definitely didn't notice. <laughs> okay, thank you. I, at least you noticed it on one of my three. Um, but it's all three oh, of them. Oh, no, I didn't. I didn't. Oh, you didn't? Are you kidding me? No. Oh my gosh! I definitely got the sense with uh, <sighs> with the ant that there was this weird artificial 
element to her. Yes. But I thought that was sort of like meant to be a clue that something's just off with her, but I didn't see with Maria Bello, no. See, I thought that maybe like it was part of the plot that she was hiding her identity, the ant. Like maybe she was someone else and then, you know, like she changed her life, you know, like, you know, for whatever reason. And so I thought maybe she was like, like constantly wearing a disguise or something. Okay, that's, okay, there you go. We mentioned prestige. So you know how, um, what's his nose? Where's the disguise? Um, uh, Christian Bale, right? When he's... Yeah, Bor- yeah was it Borden? So, okay, thank you. Okay, well, him, when he was wearing his... The ant looks like Christian Bale in disguise mode. And so that's why I wasn't sure that... Oh, he looked much worse. Oh, yeah, you're right. I know, but I'm just... Just get the effect for people who have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. Um, I thought the... So I didn't know... I didn't know if that was part of the story or not. Like, intentional... Like, is she actually hiding her identity uh, on for a reason? So I didn't know if that was part of the movie or she just fucking looks like that. And it turns out she just fucking looks like that. Uh, it's not part of the movie. It's not part of the plot that she's hiding her identity. Well, she is, but... Oh, God. But you know what I mean. Um, yeah, but I, I will say, you know, being attached to the church when I was younger, I knew a lot of people who were kind of lower kind of economic status... And a lot of them did look like they're wearing the same clothes as they bought in like 1987, same glasses that they bought in like 1990. Okay, I agree with that. Nothing had changed in all those decades, and they just look frozen in time. <laughs> so I thought that's what they were going for. Okay, I agree with that. But again, I think I think that's another aspect though, because I agree with that that they are going for that. I'm fine with that part where people wear the same glasses and their same jacket that's 20 years out of style. But I'm also talking about the makeup, and that's a separate category than like the costuming or the props. It's it's the actual makeup where I'm like, why is she wearing just again? Is it a disguise to make her look 20 years old? No, it's not. It's just that's because. But see now, if you look at a photo of the actress, you see she has been transformed. Um, but it's just distracting. And and then how do you not notice the wife, the darker? her character goes like into her despair and depression the more they lay on the makeup and then magically again big time spoiler they find her daughter and they're in the hospital and magically they take off like 80 percent of that makeup um and it's just like yeah i'm fast forwarding to a scene of her uh yeah I, i guess i could see some more like shine over the eyes and some uh the lips look extra pale I just thought that was kind of the the look, the kind of the look of the movie overall. Like, there's this really kind of inky quality to all, like, the dark elements. And then a super kind of glowy, bright... Again, I hate to belabor this. It could just be a Deacon's, a Deacon's lighting, actually. I hate to belabor this because it sounds like I'm trying to des- destroy the movie or wreck it on <laughs> such a, like, on such minutia. That's not my purpose. Um... <laughs> It's just because I, I really like this movie. It's just these little things that yeah, just take you out of the picture. I guess I have because I have a thing. I notice details and things. I notice details in movies and photographs, and these details are huge. And I'm telling you, like I'm looking at Dano right now, and however many minutes we are into the movie, and I'm telling you, it took two to three hours in the makeup chair to get his hair and face to look just the way it does. Um, in this scene where he's getting interrogated 
uh, in his aunt's home near the beginning of the movie. Whereas Gyllenhaal, all he did was put on his fake tattoos and he was ready to go. Anyway. Mm. But, uh, and, and the same for most of the rest of the cast. It's just those three stick out in particular. Um, but let's not talk about this anymore and edit this down to three minutes. Just when I talk about makeup. Because I'm not trying to focus on that. Well, fair enough. <laughs> There's actually much more interesting things to get into in this movie. Yeah, for instance, you mentioned uh, the tattoos and uh, especially the uh, the Freemason ring on mm-hmm. Detective Loki and even in the name, Detective Loki. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a little bit too on the nose, by the way. Yeah, but too on the nose, but I don't understand it at the same time. <laughs> oh, I understand it. Oh, oh no, the Loki one's a bit confusing. Um, well, uh... That's what I mean, yeah. Well, I watched some video that helped me understand it. Oh, interesting. Uh, I'm I'm fascinated to hear it because I kept pondering over the name last night. It's it's not that deep. It's not that deep, but um, oh. <laughs> that Loki. Okay, we all know who Loki Loki is as far as mythology is concerned, Norse mythology, and we know him as the trickster and the whatever. But but also, but this person was explaining how Loki would be in the service of gods and sometimes of bad bad characters or good characters. Um, and in this, um, and this might open, open it up to wider discussion on this movie, but in this, okay, let's just say Detective Loki played by Jake Gyllenhaal plays someone who is anti-Christian. Um, he is more into alternatives to structured religion and structured Christianity. He's, in other words, he leans more pagan, and and to other things uh, besides uh, religion proper, and that's where he, that's his domain. Whereas Hugh Jackman is, time and time again, shown to be this huge Christian and or Catholic, um, a man of God, uh, as far as his faith is concerned. Yeah, despite his actions. Yes. That being said, Detective Loki, while being the pagan, I'll just say in shorthand, he is actually the servant of God spiritually in this story. So I think that's the Loki connection, is that Loki, despite being who he was in Norse mythology, could also be the servant of goodness um, to a higher power, um, as flawed as Loki is as flawed as Jake Gyllenhaal's character is in his in his backstory, etc. Oh, even in his police work. I mean, he is breaking norms constantly. Yes, <laughs> yes. and I don't want to shift gears to another thing that bugged me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's there's a suicide that happens with their suspect um, in the, in the police station. Oof. And the way it goes down, the way. Uh, in the interrogation room um, with Joan Hall losing his cool and, and then, and kicking off the events, uh, you know, him like physically assaulting the, uh, the suspect. And then it, it leads to this fracas that leads to another officer losing his weapon, which leads to the suspect killing himself. If that actually happened, mm-hmm. as we see it happen in the movie, Jake Hall would have been on, on uh, 
what do you call it? Uh, administrative leave for the rest like, of the movie and would not exactly. be a participant in events. So that was an, another quibble. But eh, whatever, fine. I don't care. Whatever. Uh, in my if I. If I I can retcon it in my head canon by saying well, that that the little department swept this whole thing under the rug and they they altered the tape so that no one ever knew that's what really happened. Well, I will actually challenge that a little bit. I mean, yeah, any, any random you know dick with a gun w- would definitely get put on administrative leave for like three or four months, three to six months, until he's cleared and then raped back out. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not what would happen. Likely really. just be cleared. Come on. No, 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 no. No, no, listen, hold on. <laughs> the only way that could happen is if you do what I just said in my little head cannon retcon, which is if the small department decided to cover it up by not ever making it be known, by hiding the tape, by destroying that part of the tape when he goes in the room, that's the only way that could happen. In real- and it, so therefore, if you did do that in real life, then we could. that could be true, what you just said. But usually, people will not do an actual cover-up like that, and then that person will lose their career and lose their pension eventually. Well, debatable. But what I was going to say was, he he said at the beginning to be the best in the field. The best in the field, he's never lost a case, or never uh, not solved the case. So I think it, it, he might be a little bit elevated above any random just dick with a gun. There's no doubt he's elevated. There is no doubt. But debatable? Debatable would be to say we're not sure if a cop has ever lost his career before. And Certainly a cop has lost his career, but a lot of cops that should have lost their career have also not lost him. But but that's not the debate of this, this discussion here. So. That has happened. <laughs> no, no, no. I understand. That has happened also, but I just think people think the ratio is wildly off than what it is in real life as far as the number of instances that happen. In other words, I think there's so many cops that lost their career for smaller things. I mean, in real life. Like, for oh, yeah. taking... that, But no one counts that. Uh, so then it's just like, oh, but they all get off on... No, they don't. Plenty, plenty lose their careers for... Sm- but the difference... The difference isn't about their crimes what exactly they do it's about who they know so they could do much worse things than what jake gyllenhaal does here and easily get away with it i would not say easily so and he's a huge you know established figure pretty fucking easily but but again that's not the uh (laughs) i think it's possible but it's not easy and not as prevalent as everyone seems to think it is well, the real problem is giant public cases where the answer should be obvious, and then the answer goes the other way, because the guy knew people. That probably is part of the problem. That's where the... Oh, that's the big problem. Because all the big public cases, the people do end up knowing people, and they get away with it. And so the general public's like, oh, fuck, like, every fucking cop, these dicks, they get away with anything. I agree, it's the problem for the for the perception, these big cases, as you say. But, like I said, the reality is so many lose their job, just no one ever knows about that. Uh, so that's why I'm saying it makes it seem like the big the big publicized ones are more frequent than they really are. Or you also see people who lost their jobs time and time again but kept getting hired by the departments and then doing the same things and getting in trouble. And people are like, why the fuck do they keep getting hired, these pieces of shit? So. <laughs> but see, people remember those ones. 
people remember those ones, those rehires. They completely forget about the ones who get fired and they never see them ever again. And they just don't register. Um, I think is what God... In other words, I think it's a psychological thing more of what we're debating than the actual like, uh, statistical thing. Well, not so much statistical, but systematic is, is obviously a problem because people who you know get fired for one place shouldn't necessarily get hired when they're going to do the exact same thing because they have a track record of it. But that, again, that's not this movie, so... <laughs> I'm a little drunk at this point. Yeah, and actually, I derailed from where we were or where I was, which was just barely starting to peel back um, the lid on on exposing these two foil characters, uh, deeply foil characters, um, Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, they are, oh, by yeah. design, incredible foils for each other. Uh and we've discussed other foils and other movies that we've watched together. And that's what this movie really largely revolves around. Is Again, yes. the godly man, the man full of faith, the man who is so structured, and, and the man who appears at the beginning to be very... a very... Mm, like a structured, grounded thinker. Uh, a very practical man. Um, I'm talking about you, Jackman, right now. That's how he's presented yep. in every possible way. Whereas Jake Gyllenhaal, the pagan, is considered a man who's a mess all over the place, like mentally and you know just just not all put together, so to speak. Um, yet, when it comes to solving this crime. Jake Gyllenhaal actually is by far the more disciplined, um, by far, by far, whereas the foiled Hugh Jackman is by far the most, the, the more emotional and unhinged and just not clear thinking in any way and just all over the place. So yeah, that, you know that that's that's part of the main setup of the movie and part of the the main examination of the whole movie which again it kind of sounds like not exactly but it's kind of like how prestige is all about the, the two main characters and juxtaposing them to each other and that's very much what this movie is which is again why this makes me feel like um it's if i had no idea who made this movie um and i just saw it as is i would think it was someone who is trying to copy the style of Nolan and Villeneuve. Interesting. And I don't mean that in a, in a bad way, but I just mean, like, I would think this was a, an up-and-coming director who was trying to emulate, well, the Villeneuve of the movies he would make in the future. This doesn't work chronologically, what I'm saying. <laughs> but... Yeah, because that's what Sam... Well, no, it works in my from my perspective because I'm already familiar with his newer movies. And if you didn't tell me this was his movie... Oh, no, it doesn't work, mm. because the, the person would still have to see those movies that didn't exist yet. But anyway, um, <laughs> I would, but still, I would think this person is trying to emulate Nolan and Villeneuve's later style. And, and then you would tell me, oh, it's Villeneuve. And I go, holy shit, okay. Wasn't expecting that, but okay. Are you saying you wouldn't expect it because it wasn't up to his standard that you'd see in his later pictures, or? Yes, yes. That is correct. Now, not up to the standard 
in terms of you don't feel like the script lives up or you feel like his directorial choices um, kind of feel inauthentic? Oh, no, 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 the director, no, the direct, oh, well, that's the other thing. No, the director's choices, it's more about the script and story is what I'm saying, but visually, directorially, it's, again, it feels like they're emulating Villanueva's style and Nolan's style very well but i would think it was like like i would think it was a very well done copy you know what i mean like you know when the, you see those like um when someone gets something appraised on one of those shows uh and they're like this is from 1713 and they're like nope actually this was made in 1908 but it's a very realistic you know facsimile that's what <laughs> that's how i relate this to like the look and feel of his later works this is a very good facsimile, but it's not an original Villanueva. It's not an original Banksy. It just, it's just, it's, it's such, it's almost a Banksy, but it's not. That, yeah, that, that's how this comes off to me visually well, and directorially. Well, I will say this was his first Hollywood picture. Everything before this was all independent Canadian stuff. This was really his introduction to the American film scene. So. Maybe that's not what you're feeling. Yeah, and, and that also, I, I found, I, I discovered that, and so then that just l- lends itself to my comparison in my head of me equating this movie to um, to Nolan's Insomnia. Um, so this to be in the wave is is what in my mind Insomnia is to Nolan and his body of work, um, because that's the movie where I felt like, oh, but Miles better. It is, you know, you know, you're right. It is. Yeah, I mean, and I, I was going to try not to, to compare too much with Nolan and him, because I know we have a little bit of history doing that, but I, I knew it was going to come up. But, yeah, there's so much of a, a level of sanitation with Nolan, where I feel like he always thinks in a PG realm because he's kind of a businessman filmmaker, and he's concerned, okay, how am I going to be able to bring the most audience into my films? What is going to put them off? What is going to really draw them in? And I feel like a movie like this, there's, n- I mean, this just the the premise itself is not a mainstream audience premise. <laughs> I mean, talking Hold about on. this kind of material. No, that's interesting. I hear what you're saying, but some of the comments I saw by other critics or reviewers was they say that um, I, I said it. I saw it more than once. Something to the effect of, "This is Villeneuve's most accessible work." Yes, I agree. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, okay. Well, then I find uh, that's weird. Be- <laughs> but that's but that that goes against like the last statement you just made. No, I, I I still don't think this is a mainstream hit. I don't think any Denis Villeneuve film is a mainstream hit. <laughs> I think this is the most kind of least kind of lost in surrealism, lost in kind of strange structure of his films. I think this is the most straightforward. I think the kind of dynamics in terms of the characters are the most easily grasped. And again, I would say the same thing about Insomnia as it pertains to Nolan's body of work. That Insomnia is the most accessible, the most, like, just more straightforward story-wise. But I think this film is is so dramatically kind of traumatic for an audience. I mean, one, dealing with something that a lot of people just, you know, don't want to watch on screen is their children being kidnapped Mm -hmm. i mean that on its own people would be like i don't want to watch that i don't want to have to think about that premise Mm -hmm. but two having someone like keller 
who's this kind of very Christian, very practical kind of, you know, he's a hunter, he's he's trying to protect his family, he's trying to provide for his family, to see him being just corrupted by trauma. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's something that a lot of audiences don't want to have to deal with. They don't want to have, have to be challenged in that way to think, what would I become if I had, you know, kind of my grounding stolen out from under me? So that's why I kind of think, like, it's this is his more mainstream pick, but it's still something that Nolan wouldn't go near because just a general audience wouldn't enjoy a film like this, I don't think, just in general. Okay, I see what you're saying. I agree with that, too. Um, here's a very 2021 question for me to ask you about this movie. But do you think that a movie reviewer who leans like U.S. American conservative, because there's weird. I I even think it's weird that there's a a whole segment of reviewers, movie reviewers in the United States, who who put it right out there that they're a conservative movie reviewer. I always think that's a weird thing because <laughs> people don't usually proclaim they're a liberal like movie reviewer. I mean, it comes out in their writing, but they don't just like say it uh, as the conservative ones do. But anyway. Um, I'll just say I don't know anything about that, so that's surprising to me. Mm. No, it's it's a thing. It's been a thing for a long time. But anyway, so someone who considers themselves themselves a conservative movie reviewer, movie critic, do you think if they saw this nowadays, not 2013, but now, they would see it as like a, a critique of the quote unquote deplorables deplorables in the United States? Do you think they would? This would take a star off their rating because they would see it as somehow trying to mock or satirize, um, you know, people who they call you know preppers, you know, as, as a as a pejorative in the United States. Um, I think if they just read someone else's review, they would. If they actually watched the movie, may, maybe they wouldn't be smart enough. I don't know. I don't know if they're too reactionary to really. <laughs> see the subtleties of the character but i think they would take this as an underhanded like slap at the at the at middle america gun owners hunters religious types i don't know i think that's how they would take it no that that, that could be I, I i don't i mean i have some relatives are, that are that way but i don't ask them about their film opinions so i don't know what they would think i don't really ask them about their opinions in general just because it always kind of leads to the same kind of Alex Jones place. And, and they could have had those opinions in 2013, but I think they'd have those opinions even more um, in 2021 or, or 2020 or whatever. And by the way, jeez, <laughs> oh, there was some point earlier in the movie when they were talking about the suspect Alex Jones, and it was it was when they were <laughs> releasing him from... from uh, from being held that initial 48 hours and they were sending him back home or whatever. And then I can't remember what the police captain said to Jake Gyllenhaal, but he said something like, don't worry about us losing your Alex Jones or whatever. And I thought they were just calling him Alex Jones, you know, again, as a pejorative, <laughs> I didn't realize. And I was like, that's a weird thing to call him like to call him alex jones um and then his name's Ali, it's actually alex jones what the fuck 
<laughs> I don't know. That just that befuddled me. Yeah, you know, it's it's weird to think because this script had actually the script had actually been floating around since the uh, late two thousands. I think like two thousand seven, two thousand nine. It was kind of floating around Hollywood. So I think before then, Alex Jones was not really a well-known figure. I don't feel like most people. Did. But was the name in the original? But was the name in the original screenplay already Alex Jones, or was it changed for this production? I have no idea. But that would. I don't even think he was that huge in 2013. I probably heard about him in 2010. Uh, maybe not north of the maybe not north of the border, but uh. And maybe because because yeah, because he's based out of Austin, oh, maybe because I'm closer. I know I'm saying I might be closer, you know, yeah. to his hometown, so I might be more aware of it. Um, but mm. yeah, I heard about him because he showed up on the Young Turks network a couple times when they were on Current TV, and that's how I heard about him because I used to watch a lot of Current back in the day. Yeah, I was aware they should that he showed up. I've never watched the Young Turks, but I was aware that he had appeared. I don't know how many years ago that was now, but um, but let's put Alex Jones the name aside for a moment. All the names yeah. in the movie are extremely deliberate choices, character names. Um, so, so there's that as well. And again, that could just be from the original screenplay. Who knows? But the, but the, <laughs> their names are are, are, are right on. <laughs> I don't see any connection with the real Alex, Alex Jones with the character of Alex Jones in this. I mean, oh no, no, not really, not directly. No, it's just a curious thing. And I mean, he's not meant to represent any sort of political element or anything like that. I mean, <laughs> no, no, no. You know, you you're right about that. Um, but all the other names of other characters are all very deliberate and significant and tying in to who they are and what they're supposed to represent. I mean, Loki's the most obvious on the nose of something. Hugh Jackman and all his family, well, not all of them, but um, his wife being Maria and... and uh, Oh, no. Uh, who was named Mary? Um, maybe it was his mother, uh, his the character's mother, and then the um, the black family being named Birch and having it. There, there's tree references and connections, literally constantly throughout this entire movie. Um, it never stops with the trees. Oh yeah. Um, so. And then, man, and then Alex Jones's mother's name, Holly. <laughs> um, and Holly ha- can have a lot of meanings. Um, but Holly uh, is supposed to be, like, someone who... who, who it's supposed to be a, a symbol of peace and, and, and forthcoming. Um, so that that's interesting. Uh, I mean, that being her name. Um, and then... Mm. Hugh Jackman, his character's name is Keller Dover, and and Keller is a is the German word for cellar, and so okay, we got it. And he's a religious man who's uh, what is his profession? He's a carpenter. Oh, of course he is. Of course he is. And and what does the carpenter do? 
he works mm. with wood and he manipulates wood and he he puts wood to his service again there's the birches i mean okay we get it <laughs> some of this stuff's a bit on the nose for me <laughs> it's fine i'm not upset <laughs> hey you sound a little upset no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm a little, uh, little bothered by it. No, I, I love Avatar, and if you look at all their character names, they're all it's the same thing as this. All the characters' names are like right on the nose for for who they are or what mm-hmm. they represent. <laughs> and I'm fine with it with Avatar, so I'm fine with it with this. Um, yeah, it's like when you uh, call your lead character protagonist instead of giving a name to it, you know. Oh, you're the one who invoked the Nolan, not me. Shots fired. Not me. No, I'm fine with it. It's it it from the moment I be- became aware of the Wave's work, I have not been able to separate the comparisons uh, to Nolan ever. Uh, so, yeah. and it is it is interesting that they've been working basically alongside each other in terms of their careers the whole time. It's it's a real curious thing. Like they're very clearly influenced by the same people. I don't know who they are, yes. but yes, yes, I think they're they're acolytes of uh, of Kubrick and other things, but very Kubrick, very Kubrickian, very very Kubrickian. Yeah, and, and neither one would be them. on my favorite directors list, but I do appreciate what? that. Neither Dylan. one. No, no. What? But I do appreciate they that. are on my list of. A favorite, like current, active directors, right now. Holy shit! Yeah, I, I mean, they'd be on the list, but not in the probably the top. Uh, maybe they'd be in the top ten, both of them. Maybe. I don't know. I'd have to really think about it. But shit, I do appreciate that at least this director, you know, is willing to go a little bit more in the dark vein. I, I don't, you know, knock Nolan for for not doing that. But I always feel like there's a little bit of a sanitized element to his movies, which. I don't necessarily feel with uh, Denis Villeneuve. So. I mean, it's fine if you don't feel it with his, but other critics write that sometimes about being a wave where they express it having like a sanitized, like something about the look of it, something about the aesthetic. Um, I, I think some viewers picked that up. Oh, yeah. I, I see yeah. people saying that. Yeah, and that's one thing I will say is I see some people comparing him in a way to Nolan by saying he's like a cold calculated director. Yes. But I see that too. I definitely feel that in some Nolan films and I don't feel that in others. And I feel a similar way with Denis Villeneuve, but I feel like he's a little bit more consistent with nailing that dramatic element. I feel like some of that comes from, he's just a great director of actors so he can get some really great performances. Nolan, I, I'm not sure if he's a great director of actors. I, I can't necessarily tell. <laughs> so I feel like that's one of the differences between them. I don't know either, but what he has, I also, I don't know the answer to that question either, but he has had some actors, despite that he's had some actors deliver some particularly good performances and in, 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 in different movies of his. Um, Cause like uh, one example I'll just put out and stop talking about that is, um, like Cillian Murphy in Inception. You yes. can just focus on that one character. He's exceptionally good in that movie. I don't know that Nolan did that, or it was just that he picked the right person and then Cillian Murphy did the rest of it himself. <laughs> Whatever. 
but yeah, so you do have like amazing performances that are that are you know. Yeah, I was I was gonna point out Leo as well in Inception, but both of them are just top top uh, quality actors, so it's hard to know if they just mm-hmm. bring that to the the project or not. Yes. But I think across I the board in this movie, I mean, maybe you disagree, but I, I really do feel like everyone delivers a good performance. Viola Davis, I feel like, has an excellent scene. Everyone delivers a good performance. I agree with that. But Viola Davis's performance, it's good. Terrence Howard's performance, it's good. But I also feel like... I feel like both of them are just there for a lot of the movie, but when the spotlight really goes to them, I feel like that's when they excel. And you go, oh yeah, these people really do have quality to them. There's a scene with just Terrence Howard walking home. And it's the first time we switch to his POV. And something about just the way he's walking, just in the, he goes into his house and Viola Davis is like, where have you been? And just something about that kind of quiet moment between them, I feel like really stands out as some really quality work. And he doesn't even have any lines, but... (laughs) He just, the way that he carries himself. I mean, I agree that's a good scene, and and that's good acting. But I still feel like with those two, um, it reminds me of when you've seen a TV show or a movie when the character in the show is an actor. You know, that's what they are. That's their profession. Like, in the movie or show you're watching... And you're watching a scene with that person who's an actor in the story. And then they say, watch, watch me. I'm about to act super sad. And then they just do it in the movie. And you go, wow, that was pretty amazing. They really are a great actor. But at the same time, you know they're acting on a meta level. Uh, not on a meta level, but just in the, in the, in the, in the show movie. <laughs> and so their performances at certain points... Like, like for instance, at times when Davis's character Viola Davis, where she breaks down in the movie, it reminds me of that actor going, "Okay, watch. Here it is. I'm going to do it for you," and then boom, they instantly are breaking down, and they're doing it well, but at the same time, it seems fake, or not fake, but acting. I don't know. Does that make sense? Or I mean, even if you disagree, does that make sense? What I'm saying. Um, maybe I don't see it as much because I don't consider either actor great. Like Terrence Howard, I think is usually very mediocre. I can never not see beyond Terrence Howard. Wow. Shots fired. I, I know what you're saying, but still shots fired. <laughs> Seeing him in this, I was like, oh, Terrence Howard, he can actually deliver, you know, a quality naturalistic performance. I don't forget that it's Terrence Howard, but he's actually delivering something quality here. Viola Davis, I don't have that much experience with her, um, but I was still like, hey, you know, she can she can deliver some quality work when she wants to not just be Viola Davis in a random movie. <laughs> so maybe yeah, maybe that is shots fired against them. When Terrence Howard was first coming on the scene, I thought he was one of the most brilliant actors ever, um, but then I just kind of got over it. I felt the same way about. What's his name? Colin Farrell? Is that right? Uh, depending on which Colin you mean, yeah. I get the two mixed up. There's Colin Firth and and Colin Farrell. Well, I'm, not, I'm definitely not talking about Firth. Uh, I'm talking about the Colin... Oh, okay. Like Daredevil? 
Yes. Yes, that one. When he first came on the scene, I just thought he was the most amazing actor ever. And then I also got over it after a while. Um, But uh, Viola Davis, I can't separate her from her performance in the two Suicide Squad movies. And so it, I think that, that, that taints it because it makes it seem even more fake that she's breaking down because I can't disassociate her from Suicide Squad. And she's like being the exact opposite. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult to take seriously. Um, oh, and then there's uh, someone who's worked with Vienna Wave also more than once and, and also in Suicide Squad. But um, David Dashmalshian? Oh, uh, Polka Dot? Polka Dot Man? Yes. Who exactly. I always think of from this movie. Anytime I see him, I think prisoners. So, <laughs> um, But my gosh, when they show that artist's depiction of him in the movie, you know, when he's like wanted. Oh my <laughs> God, that is unintentionally funny, that drawing. If I was him. <laughs> I laughed too. <laughs> It's like Wes Anderson's brother who's known for making odd drawings. It's like Wes Anderson's brother drew that um, portrait. Uh, God, if I was the actor in real life, that would absolutely be like my little like Twitter um, pick <laughs> would be that that wanted poster. It's so unintentionally funny. It's funny. <laughs> I did think that was a cool little red herring though. Just this... Uh previous victim who's become obsessed with recreating his uh his trauma because the whole movie's about trauma so i kind of like that we get yes. a different kind of look at it yes and i completely fell for the red herring completely and then when it was revealed to be a red herring i felt like i felt mildly violated um by the screenplay, and the director. Mm-hmm. I it's not it wasn't bad, but it, I was just like, oh, I can't believe I fell for this, and I can't believe they set me up. Uh, uh. it was like falling into someone's trap and, and not believing that you were so dumb to fall into that trap. That's kind of how I felt. Yeah, and I, I definitely understand that perspective because there's other times when I'm watching a movie. Yeah, there's other times when I'm watching a movie. I wish I could think of a good example. Where I do fall for their trap, but I'm delighted when I discover I'm in the trap, and I'm like, "Oh, well done! Oh, masterful! Like, oh, you, you know, you know what I mean." So sometimes I'm happy to fall into a trap, but sometimes I'm I'm disgusted with myself that I fell into the trap, and that's how I felt on mm. this one. I should have saw that coming. Yeah, I can understand that. I just appreciate that we, because we see so much of the trauma between the the differing elements of trauma between the two parent parental groups. And then we see how the trauma kind of affects Loki, which is a very different kind of kind of element to it. But I appreciate that we see a kid who I mean we, I guess we have the two kids. I don't know if um Paul Dano's character was also abducted. I, I can't remember. Yes. Yes. Oh yes. Okay. Yes, he was abducted when he was very young and then kept you know, this whole time by that family yeah and he's almost become like their their tool yes absolutely absolutely and then polka dot man is kind of just he's never been able to move past his trauma and just tries to recreate it so so i I appreciated that 
since that's kind of the overriding theme of the movie, that we get all these different elements of it and how it ripples out and affects people's lives. So that, yes, that's kind of why I appreciate that element. Well, that's the thing. They're trying to say that, I mean, that's why the movie's called, well, one of the reasons why it's called Prisoners is because everyone's a prisoner mm-hmm. of their trauma. And there's those characters you already mentioned. Of course, there's our two leads, Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal, and their traumas. And then for other characters, it's their trauma in the moment of the movie, like the Birches um, and everybody else. But everyone's a prisoner to their trauma. Even even um, Holly Jones, uh, Dano's aunt, has her trauma. The the priest, the father, um, and his trauma. It's everybody. Yeah, and I appreciated though they kind of hinted that maybe Jake Gyllenhaal had some experience of child abuse in his uh, boarding school, which was I think a Catholic boarding school. So again, kind of the ripples of how people's lives are affected by abuse in their youth so yes which yeah he definitely you know he definitely crosses some lines no doubt as a, as a police officer but i kind of appreciate him fucking up the priest so i was like yeah fuck that old man <laughs> again and i get it but again that again would a uh the conservative movie critic feel like that's another oh i get it take another slap against the church all right you liberal commie movie maker they earned it (laughs) they more than earned it by a mile by a country mile (laughs) um i was gonna say something else about this um but again oh yes so us pointing out all this what we just said about all the different characters and all their different trauma see that's part of my thesis of seeing the strings being pulled um behind the scenes is is all that stuff being quite apparent that we just said um, if that makes sense yeah I feel like it was a little too too highlighted you're, are you saying no because again as I said earlier this didn't make me dislike the movie but I couldn't not be conscious of the levers being pulled and those were levers being pulled that's all I'm saying uh, and then how mm. In some movies, I don't see I don't see and feel the levers being pulled, but that didn't necessarily it didn't necessarily make the, make me like the movie less. I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, so there's a moment in the story, there's a turn that for me is a little it's, it's a little shark jumpy. Uh, I'm going along for the ride of this movie, and then when we get to where you Jackman takes Dano's character, like, kidnaps him, essentially. Um, takes him hostage. Not hostage, but kidnaps him and traps him in his uh, father's little property. And then, you know, start torturing him and abusing him. You know, all that business. Okay. The fact that he kidnaps him was a little bit shark jumpy in of itself. Um, it's like, okay, this movie's going there. All right. Here we go. Let's, uh... Let's go ahead and open this um, bag of worms. And, okay, fine, I went with it. But then, when he got the Birches involved, that, it was enough for me to accept that one person would would go so far um, into ridiculousness as far as taking matters into their own hands. But then, 
that he got first Mr. Birch to go along with it, and then Mrs. Birch. Okay, I, I just had to. I had. It's not that it was. Imp- it's not that that couldn't happen in real life. Yeah, it could happen in real life. I could. I could see that. But it wouldn't. It doesn't come off to me as real in the movie, even though theoretically that could happen in real life. It well, it, I'll, I'll it, give you. I'll give you my interpretation. Okay. So watching this, the first time I watched it that sequence in particular became very clear that this movie was written during the Bush administration and was clearly a comment on not just individual trauma, but like countrywide trauma. And what are we going to accept? Jeez, now you sound like a conservative movie critic, but go on. Yeah. What, what are we going to accept? You know, we have, we got this people who commit a crime that, you know, crushes you right to your core. How are you going to react? What's too far and I feel like kind of the torture element and the fact that he's a super religious guy, which, you know, we could all debate, is George Bush really religious or is he just using that as like a cudgel to the right to kind of keep them on his side at the time, I mean, and kind of the level of torture that he goes to, you know, I mean, what's too far or what's the right way to go to... Okay, that explains him on his own. And the Birches, I feel like, are meant to be the rest of the public kind of going along this, this is in my bullshit like i'm writing a college paper no no i i no i can see it i can see it that, that's what i was thinking the first time i watched it i don't know if i when i watched it this time i was like oh you know i was too up my own ass at the time but no i mean i could see that yeah and maybe the movie was made a little too late i mean this is well into the bush administration's second term or the obama second term so <laughs> Yeah, but no, I mean, okay, I can see what you're saying. That being said, though, if I just take the movie on its own terms without trying to think into it, because you, 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 there, there very well could be elements of truth in what you just said. Um, but if I just take the movie on its own terms, though, and not in socio-political terms, it just mm-hmm. comes across as a bit shark jumping. But I just let it go. I just let it go. Just like you let it go that the TARDIS could make sense and really work in real life and function and travel <laughs> through space and time. I just or the transporters in Star Trek. I just okay, fine. I'm just I'm not gonna let it ruin the movie for me. I'll just accept it. Yeah, and I, I think all the actors kind of carry the dramatic weight. I mean, I, I think that's what helps sell it. They did, but still, how could you? Like, you don't even know it's the guy, and then even if it was the guy. Even if it was the guy, you're you're helping him. You're helping him when he eventually faces, you know, a jury and a judge. You're helping his case. So why would you do that? Even if he was the guy, why would you do that? Well, you you know these people aren't thinking logically. They're thinking, I gotta save my my kid, and every day counts. But I was also gonna say that this viewing in particular, I was thinking about the uh, whole. Um, you know, state killing element. I mean, this guy's very much taking the action to his own hands and kind of, you know, being the judge, jury, and executioner, even though he doesn't execute him. It's still, he's kind of taking that role. And I was thinking of how people, you know, they're like, oh, well, kill him, you know? Well. And they end up, you know, finding out that people fucked up and <laughs> they weren't actually the one in charge, the one who did it. Well, in my head canon in 2021, in my head canon for 2021, 
Hugh Jackman re- represents uh, social media and cancel culture. <laughs> well, that's that's what he represents in in my 2021 headcanon because as soon as he consider because he he's social media who is judge jury edu- executioner and once he decides to cancel somebody um he then affects like the public at large who is the birches um and yeah so that's what i think it is <laughs> not really but yeah well i will just say uh, i'll take uh canceled being canceled over the death penalty so <laughs> But I definitely was feeling some more of that this viewing around than I did the last time, just thinking about how people, they're so ready to jump to, would people who were like, oh yeah, do whatever it takes to, you know, punish these people, would watching this movie make them flinch, just the level of brutality that Keller delivers. But see, I would get it, like, like if you, if you saw, if you knew this person killed your daughter you actually witnessed it and then you take matters in your own hands and you do some illegal shit and kill him yourself okay but when you're not sure and you still do it that's a bit crazy to me more than a bit crazy yeah one of them's revenge one of them's a little something different like if he was just committing like if this was just torture in a revenge way i mean that's i saw the devil have you ever seen that flick by the way no, never heard of it either. Oh, I, I, I'm gonna pull that out for you real soon. You absolutely have to see that film. So, so we'll return to that later. But, but yeah, but not knowing. I mean, that's the real question for him. Is he keeps saying, "I know for sure that that he was responsible." No fucking way. And just because he's exactly. goading you, jeez, come on, man, come on. Yeah, that is one thing I I don't understand about the Paul Dano character, like. Is he, is he so simple he doesn't understand what he's saying? No. When he, he gives him the hints, it's just like pulled out of no, him. No, no, no. He doesn't fully... No, he understands. He, under, he understands. He understands. He understands. Is he just so brainwashed and fearful of his, his parental figure that he can't give them away? I, I was never quite sure what was going on there. Uh, yes, probably on that point. Yes. Yeah, he wouldn't give. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But he obviously has a hardcore, hardcore, hardcore case of uh, um, of uh, Stockholm syndrome without without question. But he totally knows what he's doing when he's goading Hugh Jackman. So stupid. Yeah, I think I mentioned earlier in the podcast that he was kind of like a, a like a helper for the the kidnappers. But I, I guess they say that he wasn't, because they said that he just brought him there. And she was the one who decided to keep them, and he just was just wanted to play with them. So, so maybe he really is that kind of doesn't fully understand what's happening around him kind of guy. I, I'm not sure. I no, I think he understands, but he's not necessarily evil. He's just kind of uh, what is that? Well, he's more than chaotic neutral. Um, I don't know if he's evil, though. Yeah, he His brain is clearly pretty damaged. I kind of wondered if maybe the drugs that they gave him just, like, gave him brain damage. I wasn't... Again, they don't give any details, so... Oh, I'm... I'm no, okay. There, look, there is no doubt about all that. Brain damage and trauma and everything. And probably being influenced by substances growing up and in the... Pre- oh, all that probably true. 
But the part where he's like a 10-year-old mentality and doesn't understand. Uh, he may be a 10-year-old emotionally, but not cognitively, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, he clearly knows what not to say. He knew exactly what he was doing when he made all those stupid... When he said all those, when he made all those stupid comments, he knew exactly what to do. And when he was acting super dumb in front of the police, whether in the parking lot or in the station, that was intentional to come across as super dumb, super out of it. Yeah, I did get the sense that maybe only under extreme circumstances would he like peek through, like when he first let, lets it slip to Hugh Jackman when he gets attacked by him, kind of off guard, and then when he's being when Hugh Jackman kind of breaks down emotionally to him, when he's like, please don't make me do this to you. Like I, you know, even though I created this kind of torture device, like I don't want to fucking do it. And he kind of breaks down then too. Yeah. I I was, I was curious about that. I didn't really fully grasp where that character was at any point though. The, the Paul Dano character. And then of course, Hugh Jackman's home and his father's, um, derelict property is a whole metaphor for his mental state. Again, a bit on the nose. It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) But a bit on the nose that his house, especially his basement, represents him putting himself together as an adult. Um, The guy who's been sober for nine years or whatever. Um, The guy who lives a super organized, structured, religious life. Um... Who, of course, has unsettled trauma deep inside. And that's what the whole property represents. Trauma that has not been addressed and has not been worked on at all and remains suspended in disarray. But compartmentalized as well. Fine. Fine. I Fine. I'm okay with these very obvious metaphors. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Uh, <laughs> oh, I just feel like every time you say, oh, I'm okay with it. it sounds like, yeah, but it kind of pisses me off a little bit. Or just annoys me a little bit. Nah, it doesn't piss me off, but it, it is a little... Well, because, okay, Kubrick does the same things. I mean, when he sets up references in his movie movies. But I have to watch his damn movies 20 times before the light bulb goes off. And so, yeah, this is a lack of subtlety. I'm not against it. It's just... I kind of prefer when I have to watch it the fourth time and I realize rather than the first time. Yeah, I'm curious to break out Enemy for you. Do you know anything about that movie? Have you heard anything at all about it? Nope. 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 Now, if I watch it or read a synopsis, which I won't read a synopsis, but if I was, I might recognize it by that, but I wouldn't know unless I did it and I'm not going to do it. If I, if we have any intention of watching it someday, I'm not going to read the synopsis this time yeah that one might be a little bit more up your alley and then other belabored metaphors which is fine is just (laughs) the whole maze thing the whole maze thing Uh, not to mention the serpents not to mention the serpents oof yes one of my biggest problems explain Uh, my biggest problem is it's a huge component of the movie that has no real conclusion to it how um there's that one fucking line by the ant when she's like oh if you solve my maze you'll be able to go free but that's it i mean it never is an element to the plot at all except for a tie to their group 
but it's like a maze you figure has some sort of I mean maybe the maze is supposed to be that their kind of child ring is so complex that you'd never figure it out but it seems like it's only two people and it seems like it wasn't that difficult to figure it out since both Keller and Loki figure it out by the end of the movie so I mean I I just it never seemed to really amount to anything at all for me say say her say her line again uh whose line um holly's and the end say her line again about the maze or mazes oh i i don't remember her line but i know that one of the detectives finds a book in that bobby taylor's apartment where it was like the last maze which was the one that the dead husband has around his neck was like the impossible to solve maze and that was kind of the the symbol that they keep kind of highlighting in the movie but I was like, it wasn't impossible to solve because right. one, a detective solved it and a non-detective who was just torturing someone to figure it out solved it too. So <laughs> what's the impossible to solve maze here? Seems like any fucking amateur could figure it out. I think it's because I think it's because I think it's because the maze functions on so many different levels that you're right on that level, they solve it. But I think, again, it works on other levels. I think what they mean by the unsolvable maze is that not that you won't solve this riddle as far as who done it. I think it's you'll never solve you'll never solve how this makes sense to me or us uh, the motivations for our actions. Mm. And I know we find out why. Like, literally. But that's not what I'm talking about. I don't mean knowing literally why. I mean... <sighs> hmm. In other words... Okay, what happened? They lost their young child to cancer or something, right? Yep. And, and they like were that. very religious. And then that rocked their world. And then it led to what it led to. Okay. So the maze is trying to figure out how all that happened to them and in their mind and in their trauma because the same thing could happen to me in real life I have a young child who dies of um, cancer at a young age or whatever childhood ailment yet I don't go on some serial killer spree I just have my grief and I deal with it and I move on with my life so there's no maze there. But the maze is trying to figure out how someone else in that situation goes completely loopy and justifies what they do. I think that's the level of the maze that, that's being spoken of in, in the book or whatever. The book that's in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, it almost, say, it almost sounds like you're saying that trauma itself is a maze. Yes, yeah. that, that's, uh, that's obvious. No, that's obvious. <laughs> That's the that's the most base level part of the of the metaphor for the whole movie. Um, so we already established that all the characters have their own traumas to deal with, and navigating your way mm -hmm. through that trauma or whoever character you are in the movie, that's your own personal maze. And some people will eventually solve the maze, which means they f they find their wholeness again. Or some won't ever find their way through the maze, and then they'll be stuck in their trauma to the to the full yeah. degree. 
you phrasing it that way makes it a little bit better. Because I, I was kind of annoyed when there's that one dropped bit where um, the ant is like, oh, if you solve my maze, then you can go free. And then we never see the maze being solved. We just see the kids escaping. And I was kind of like, what, is that all we're going to see of the, the maze element? And that kind of annoyed me. But yeah, no, that, that, that makes it fit more that it was just a thematic thing. Now, the other thought I had... Oh, which definitely the the author was definitely just kind of doing that Nolan thing where he kind of uh, kind of stacks the theme atop a theme atop a theme kind of thing in his script. Yeah, 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 okay. Which has its place, but... Yeah, I agree, I, I think, with what you just said. Um, now, once we get to the end, when you, Jackman... Oh my gosh, he's already kidnapped Dano. That's already redonkulous. And now he's going to come over and pretend like he's going to do some pro bono work at his aunt's home. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Have you not done enough already? <sighs> hey, he pretends for like for like two seconds. He walks across the room and immediately turns around and says, like, Okay, I know you did it. So it's not even a pretense, really. It was exhaustive and dumb, though that he would even <laughs> go down that road. But I guess he's already proven he's an imbecile. Anyway, um, so then when she forces him to take the drink, that's when the light bulb finally went off for me. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to ask you, Caleb, now. Do you think that the director of Wave, and this could be in the original book and script, I'm sure, but regardless of if it was the original book or script, do you think Vina Wave was consciously chan channeling the vanishing? Specifically. At least if that was in his mind. Um, I never got that sense. There's no visual reference, I don't think. But... No, 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 no. I'm not saying that he was doing an homage to it. But I just, I'm just asking if you think it was in his head, his own personal head. Um, I, I really don't know anything about Denis Villeneuve's kind of experience with films, so I don't know. I, I still think of that film as kind of obscure, so <laughs> I would think that almost no one's seen it. <laughs> okay. I don't know either. I mean, I can't literally get into his head either. But every amount of movie research I've ever done, it always is the same answer, which is... You think you've, you're the one who discovered a Criterion classic? <laughs> no. Martin mm -hmm. Scorsese's seen every single one you've ever seen. And so has Tarantino. Mm -hmm. And and so has Nolan. And so has Peter Jackson. Like, I just come to find that to be true with any research I do. Um, that I guarantee all those guys, and, and Woody Allen, if you said, hey, Vanishing... <laughs> No, I'm serious. No, I'm serious. I'm very... I'm dead serious. If you said, oh, The Vanishing, that, that um, Dutch or Belgian movie, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They all know it. I I, I bet you 90%, 95% of them all know it and have seen it. I bet you. I, yeah, mean, I would say on that. a little bit of a difference is because Villeneuve is a little bit younger. He wouldn't have been going to the same film festivals as those guys. I mean, that's how Jake Gyllenhaal and Denis Villeneuve got hooked up, is Gyllenhaal was, like, hosting a film festival that one of Denis Villeneuve's films was in. That's how he kind of met him, so. But I still stand by the fact. He may not have grown up with it, 
when he was coming up. But the fact that you and I have seen it, I think that already qualifies it. Um, yeah, that's fair. It is interesting to think, though. I think that Blu-ray release came out after this movie was even even made, so I don't know how much was rediscovered before then. But I also find that those guys, those guys seem to get introduced to those movies, um, like when they're in film school, and mm. it, it seems like depending on what generation of school they were in, they either saw it on eight millimeter film reels or they saw it like on VHS or something. Um, and see, I'm old enough to remember when a lot of those European and Asian films that are significant now in the Criterion Collection, uh, those that came out like in the 80s and 90s, I'm old enough to remember where, you know, people would seek that kind of stuff out on VHS, um, you know, by going to boutique type of stores and stuff or catalogs or something because obviously you wouldn't find most of that stuff at blockbuster but but it was findable somewhere yeah uh, so and the cult section of uh some random video store i think being wave had vanishing in his mind uh i'm not saying he referenced it visually on screen i just think it, it was in his mind he was conscious of it um while he was making his movie and I also think Vanishing is a very, it's a very uh, proto version of this. I know there's tons of other takes on kidnappings and things. I get it. Those aren't the only two. But, but I still see Vanishing as a very proto version of this. And, and someone who's obsessed with the, with the disappearance. And then the whole thing of, okay, if you want to find out, the only way you're going to find out is if you drink this drink. Um... And yeah, they're kind of another meditation on trauma, kind of thing. And then being buried alive. Which again, I feel like that's not a, a mainstream topic that people really want to spend much time discussing. Just like grief, people don't want to watch movies that are all about people wallowing in grief. That's just not fun. So. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like those two movies I named earlier. Those other two movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, that's one of the things I, I appreciated about this movie is really kind of spending time in kind of a mode that you don't see a ton in movies just kind of wallowing on people suffering in this case because their their young children were abducted i feel like i just don't yeah. see a lot of that in in feature films you watch them like like any kind of documentaries about people like oh i lost my kid in 1979 and it's 1998 now and they never found the kid like i, I can't stand watching those kind of cold case kind of documentary dramas or whatever <laughs> oh my god that's much worse i already don't want to watch movies like that but that's much worse if you talk about those pseudo documentaries that's off the charts unwatchable by yeah, that's the only that's the only place where i feel like they really kind of cover this kind of topic you don't see it too much in film no but don't you get like the movies you get one like every now and then though don't you like um like gone girl yeah ben affleck did one yeah, that's Gone Girl, I think. Well, I wasn't going to say that one. I was going to say, uh, no, he, he did another one before that. Gone Girl's a little bit different. Um, I think it was Ben Affleck's first film. Oh, fuck, what was it called? Ben Affleck's a great director. Um, what was it? Uh, I own it on Blu-ray, but my Blu-rays aren't in this, this room here. Only my DVDs are. Uh, but is he a great director, though? And th This is a rhetorical question, or unanswerable. Is he a great director... 
Or does he just assemble the right people to w- collaborate with? Hey, that's the question of every director. Uh, gone Baby Gone. Is it, it? Whoa, 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 whoa. It may be the question for many directors, but I don't know if it's the question for every director. Uh, I think it's a question... F- I mean, film is always a collaborative effort, no matter what. It's just across-the-board collaborative. Yes, but I think there's many more directors that probably fall into the category or basket of they assemble the correct people versus the ones that we know are fucking geniuses. Yep. And it's the genius is going to hit the screen one way or the other. Um, and especially those who, who are the um, the writer-directors, especially, seem to be the ones who... Yeah, they yeah. bring the right collaborators, but we know they're the star in the room, so to speak. Well, I, I've seen everything uh, Affleck's directed except for Live by Night, his most recent film. And I think Argo, The Town, and Gone Baby Gone, especially Gone Baby Gone, I think are all really excellent. I mean, Gone Baby, Gone Baby Gone, I think, is by far his best film, but it really hits that dramatic kind of element and really takes you to a place that a lot of films don't. But maybe that's just me. I like, clearly, I have a kind of penchant for going to the dark <laughs> elements. So maybe that's why I like Gone Baby Gone so much and, and films like Prisoners here. But maybe that's just my own personal bias for whatever reason. And I, I really do think Jake Gyllenhaal, I mean, I've, I've always been a fan of his as, a, as an actor. I think, like you said, Hugh Jackman, um, he's always great, but he can very much fall into a, a certain mode that he does very well. There's something about Jake Gyllenhaal where he somehow just continually reaches new places to go, and he does them just brilliantly each time. Like, the guy, I, I don't know, like, <laughs> the blinking thing, the kind of caustic kind of element that he captures where it's, like, barely kept under wraps, and every now and again it explodes in this movie. I think that's just some great stuff. Um, he, he's just he's just constantly engaging as an actor. I don't know what it is about him, but I just always turn out for his films, and I'm never disappointed. Except for Life. I didn't like Life. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no, that's not a good movie. <laughs> but otherwise, but I'm always happy to see him. No? He has this weird... <laughs> it's this movie star, X Factor, where on paper he's not just a naturally all-around handsome person or beautiful person, um, like a Brad Pitt mm-hmm. or a Tom Clooney, Tom Clooney, or... Uh, George. George. <laughs> yeah, George Clooney. <laughs> Unless there's a Tom Clooney, I don't know about. <laughs> George Clooney. George, I was like, who's George? Uh, George Clooney. Um, Denzel Washington. Those are just some naturally attractive I guess men uh, like in their face or whatever um, Jake Gyllenhaal he's like especially coming out like in Donnie Darko just looks like he could be an, an everyday kid an everyday high school high schooler like not a movie star especially not in Donnie Darko um, but as he matures into his career yeah. Even though he's not the prettiest, most beautiful person, he 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 is he comes across as greater than some of his parts, and it has something to do with his acting. And I found him to be actually just his physical presence 
I found him to be extremely visually attractive in this movie. Even though he doesn't have the um mm-hmm. the uh the typical Hollywood leading man looks. Okay, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I'll even say he's not when you actually look at him he's not an opposing um or Im- imposing presence. But for whatever reason he just seems larger than life, kind of like this oppressive force. Anytime he like interacts with suspects, he just looks incredibly intimidating towards them. Even though he's not like super buff or super tall or anything like that, he just somehow just captures that kind of weight. Yeah, it's really it's really captivating. I agree, honestly. and I also don't know if the next thing I'm, I'm about to say is going to make any sense. <laughs> he's almost a character actor who continually plays leading man. Does that make sense? <laughs> It, it does make sense, yeah. Because if you were like, a, you could be a character manager. actor to be like the uh, the dishonest bank manager, you know, the character actor who plays the nebbish medical doctor. He's the character actor who plays leading men, leading man types. Because it, it again, it, <laughs> yeah, and that's that just goes to show his talent. Because, <laughs> like you said, he's not. He's not like a Brad Pitt or like a Ben Affleck, but he gets those same roles because he he he's just attractive enough. But he's such a quality actor that yeah. people just want to work with him. And again, that's that's the whole reason I. I imagine that's out. how he's like in real life too. I have no idea, but I imagine in real life he probably has that magnetic quality that people just want to be like in his sphere, uh, physically, like in the real world. And I think he's probably infectious that in the same way too. Uh, like even though he doesn't have the Brad Pitt looks, he just has something about his personality and his persona that probably causes people to gravitate to him. You don't see a lot of Hollywood productions tackling this kind of topic, and I'm not sure if this is Hollywood. I mean, was it Alcon? I, I think the, the company was. Like I don't know how big they are. <laughs> it's not a company that I see super duper often, but. At least for the distribution, though, um, at least here in, in the United States, it was distributed by Warner Brothers. Mm. So it may not be a Warner Brothers movie, but you know, it's still under the Warner Brothers badge. Yeah, and I, I don't think it made them anything. I don't think anybody saw this really. I mean, even me, who was interested to see it, uh, I think it did okay. I think it did okay. I don't... I think it did, I, I don't know if, if I'm remembering this correctly, but it was like a budget of 44, 45 and had a return of like 130 or something like that. Oh, that's okay. It's a minor profit with uh, prints and advertising. Although I don't feel like this was advertised much. Right, and that's just U.S. domestic, of course. Or I think that's yeah. U.S. domestic that I'm, that I'm quoting. Um, there was only one or two more things I had in mind. Yeah, I mean, I just there's only one other thing for me. So, uh, were, were you thinking? Because I, I mentioned earlier how uh, um, Jake Gyllenhaal he's got all the tattoos, like the the symbols on his fingers. He's got the Freemason ring. Was the only thing that you were thinking is just like the Freemason was like a sign that you know kind of um, secret societies was going to be a theme here. Was it was that what you were thinking, or did you have something else in mind? No, I didn't think. No, 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 no. no. I never, I never, I never thought that. <laughs> No. Sure. Uh, I just took it as all of it as just being 
again to show that he's um, anti-conformist when it comes to traditional organized religion, etc. I just took all those things to oh, the symbols okay. of that. Uh, yeah, I thought maybe Freemasons mean something a little different in Canada. I mean, they're they're all over the place. Mason halls, like, <laughs> you know, you can drive down almost any street and you'll come across some sort of Mason kind of symbology. So I, I, I feel like that's a little bit more conformist. Here you have to look for it. Well, maybe it's different in northern parts of the United States or northeast, but at least where I am in Texas, it exists, but you have to go looking. I'm talking about, like, the architecture or sim- symbology. Um, it's not everywhere. Yeah, literally, literally here in BC, you can drive down the highway, and there'll be signs on the road like, oh, stop here for a mason hall. So it's it's pretty all over the place, <laughs> which is always strange to me. I don't know anything about the masons, really. All I know is that they're like this kind of secret, secretive group that are apparently quite present here. But so it's always been an element of mystery for me. It's a thing. I'm not an expert on it. It's a thing. But I would not put it in the same category as something like Scientology or something like that. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's just more like a kind of men's club. But so, yeah, I, something like that. I just wouldn't think of it as nonconformist because I almost feel like being in a club like that is almost more conformist in a way. Maybe that's my elitist element. <laughs> Does anyone need an explainer for the very, very end? And I mean like the, the closing frames of the movie. Because I saw some videos out there. I didn't have the time to watch them, but like videos on YouTube, like like ending explained for prisoners and stuff. Um, I don't think this is like the top... Um, in Inception, where there's like, where there's so many different ways you can interpret the very ending and what you think happens just post credits in your mind, where Inception is highly debatable, I don't think it's very debatable, yeah. right? I'm right, right. I don't think there's any debate. Like it's pretty straightforward. What happens? At the... Yeah, I think Villeneuve is more like I've already shown you that things just kind of happen in a logical sequence, so you can assume what happens next so the movie's over (laughs) i feel like that's kind of what the ending was it was kind of like we didn't need to see a scene of like jubilation when hugh jackman's rescued like we don't need that kind of stuff (laughs) so it just ends before that i don't know if we would have saw jubilation but uh but yeah okay just well obviously he would have been arrested but (laughs) right well yeah but still but it was it would have been a more happy ending and this movie didn't necessarily need a, a happy ending but but it's not ambiguous as to whether he was rescued or not. It's pretty pretty fucking straightforward. He was rescued, etc. Yeah. Okay. Just want to make sure. Yeah, and I, I think it's good to stop there. And I will even say one of the things that I find a little odd in this movie that's so centered on trauma is the trauma is almost misplaced because the kids, you know, there's no actually an unhappy ending. The kids live. Hugh Jackman lives. So it's almost a meditation on trauma that is, in a way, undermined by going with a happier ending. But I'm, I'm kind of glad the kids don't die, just because, you know, you don't want the kids to die, so... <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. And it was a little... It was a little overwrought, the... The, um... The race to the emergency room for the little girl. But, eh, it's fine. Oh, but it looks so pretty. It was pretty. Oh, it looks beautiful. I, I thought that was some excellent stuff. 
just just in terms of the cinematography. It was pretty, but but it was more like a like a psychedelic trip or something, uh, which yeah, which okay. is why I loved it. <laughs> oh, okay, well there you go. Well there you go. Oh, and I remember this from from that podcast. I think Jake Gyllenhaal was saying that he had like a headache that day when he okay. had to shoot the the car scene. <laughs> okay. And whoever the makeup person was came over and put blood. They were like, "Where where where is your headache?" He's like, oh, it's right around this area over my eye. And so they put blood right there so they can be like, okay, focus on the paint in that area. So I thought that was interesting. Just it, it stuck out in my mind as like, oh, a makeup artist did that? That's pretty fucking interesting that they were making like calls like that. Directorial calls almost. <laughs> so again, film's a very collaborative thing. So, you know, it's interesting to see all those little bits come together. Hmm. Do you think this is relevant or not? Because uh, you know, the movie's playing, and the uh, the home uh, where Dano lives, his aunt, the house number is sixteen thirty four. So I just type in sixteen thirty four Catholic, and sixteen thirty four is the year that Catholicism was established in the English colonies. Coincidence or not? Hey, I've got no clue. I mean, we got the the child uh, rapist priest i mean maybe there's some connection <laughs> i don't know i mean is that just a complete random accident that the house number is 1634 <laughs> and it just happens to be, Could be the year catholicism was introduced into the new world or at least in the in the in north america i will say it, it was an interesting choice to make the priest like he, he was clearly a sex offender no doubt but that he murdered a worse potentially sex offender I thought was an interesting element that was never explored in the movie like was it guilt of his own past crimes that made him kill that guy or I wasn't quite sure what the the point of that was there I think that's what the priest was going on and Jake Gyllenhaal's character was just like I don't give a fuck either way (laughs) if that's what you were trying to do or not fair enough (laughs) And that was the most obvious shit ever, by the way. I'm talking about the movement of the fridge to to block the. Uh... Oh yeah. I was like, okay, okay, fine. <laughs> obvious fucking. Again, thing. watching that scene, I was a little uncomfortable because I was like, oh, "Here's this cop, basically breaking into this guy's house. Like, sure, he's got the call where he's like, oh, he looks like he passed out, but is that really a call to break into his fucking house and start?" exploring places that you're not supposed to well, go. Uh, I mean, sure he found a body, but even still he had no warrant or any right whatsoever to do that. So I was like, uh It's enough. It's enough just cause. I mean, if that was real... Because the alternative to what you're saying is he's snooping around the outside, sees a body on the floor, and then does nothing but make a phone call. Now See, that's the alternative, if he doesn't do what, what he did in the movie. Yeah, but right before that scene, we see him, like, there's some businessman who's like, oh, I haven't done anything in years. And he's, like, pushing him around, going through all of his stuff. And I was like, yeah, these are fucking sex offenders, but it, it seems like he's clearly abusing them as a as a police officer here. Like, yeah. Okay, <laughs> so yeah, it was more of an, It was more just the continuation of the scene that made me go, eh... And again, he he's 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 doing good work, but it's still 
also like if this was the real world i'd be like fuck you cop for being an asshole and pushing people around just because i have a personal bias against a lot of cops because i've also been pushed around a lot by them for no reason so <laughs> i've kind of got a certain kind of like fuck you mentality Oh, but I guess final thoughts on prisoners? <laughs> no, I was going to actually do that myself. I mean, segue into the final thoughts. Um, sure. This was an extremely good movie overall. I know I sound super overly critical and quibbling over this and that, but no, I thought I found it a highly enjoyable movie. Highly recommendable. For some reason, my sister has a thing for movies that make you feel really uncomfortable. And so I immediately recommended this to her because I don't know why she likes stuff like that. But this seems like something <laughs> she would be into. Um, and it's really, really good. I think I think it's fantastic. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, and it's not... Thematically, it's not you know, as, sim- as similar as those other being away movies I've seen. But it doesn't matter. It was just a really good movie. Um... And uh, I would give it four some things, four whistles, four red whistles out of five, which I think is a pretty high rating. Um, Let's see. On Rotten Tomatoes, they give it 81%, the critics over there. It's even higher, 87% with the audience. And, um, Mm. And the critical consensus is, Prisoners has an emotional complexity and a sense of dread that makes for absorbing and disturbing viewing. Yeah, I highly agree. Yeah, and, and I would give it a, a four as well. Um, I was actually considering giving it a, a three point five just because I thought the movie is almost too dour to be kind of something that I would go back to. But I was like, that shouldn't necessarily relate to the score. <laughs> but yeah, it, I find this movie very emotionally kind of. Um, engaging in a way that i find negative like i don't want to go back to this anytime soon it's been almost 10 years since last time i watched it. it'll probably be the same for the next time i watch it uh, but but I, I think there's a good command of pace um, all the performances are good the cinematography is of course uh, stunning but i also quite like the score i think it's one of those kind of wallpaper scores where you don't really notice it uh you're right i didn't notice it <laughs> but i think it's got a good kind of um kind of guiding force to the audience like it, it really can build in the ominous scenes but again it's it's a wallpaper kind of piece where you don't really pay too much attention to it but you yeah, know it's definitely definitely one I'll, I'll go back to but maybe in like a decade from now again so <laughs> I, I wonder why this is the kind of movie that I don't intend to ever watch again um, yet uh, Silence of the Lambs hmm is a movie I could watch multiple times. I could if I had to watch it multiple times a year. I don't normally, but why is that? I don't know. It's a question for another day. But yeah, I'll, I'll quickly answer for me. I think the scenes between um, Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins, there's a sort of exhilarating quality to them. Okay, because they're yeah. so dynamic. Those two actors. Mm-hmm. So there's almost like an infectious quality where you, you keep on repeating it. There's no... Almost all the, the character scenes in this are individual. And a lot of them are very emotionally kind of hard-hitting. Like a lot of the Hugh Jackman scenes here 
as I watch them, I kind of like cover my face and I'm like, oh fuck, like I don't want to see this kind of trauma. Yes. On screen. Agree. So I, I find that stuff uncomfortable, which is why I wouldn't go back to it much. Well, I do too. In this movie, I do. And I think you're right about what you just said. And I just have a, a, another theory to go along with it um, that just came to me in real time. I agree with everything you said about Silence of the Lambs. Uh, but also, I think Silence of the Lambs has this other element. You know Dan Brown? Is that the right author of like mm-hmm. Da Vinci Code? Um, I don't yep. know if you if you actually watch the movie, if you remember it. Um, but the movie very much reflects the novel, which I actually read as well. And I don't usually read novels like that. And I don't mean like a national treasure type novel. What I mean is a novel that has that type of pacing. The the novel is paced like the movie, which is it's it, it's it it has a very going downhill momentum. Like it it you're on a ride, you're on a treadmill, and you it, it is going. It, it is not going slow. It is moving. And that's you feel it when you read the book. Um, mm. And I think there's an element of that. There's a Dan Brownness feeling of we are moving along in this plot and in this story uh, in Silence of the Lambs as well, which I think somehow contributes to rewatch and getting back on the ride. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Yeah. I think it's odd that. Here in the U.S., um, this movie is currently available on Hulu. And so, you know, I let it play while we were recording. And like Netflix, you know, when you get to the end of something, it'll put you into something else, relatable. Mm -hmm. You know what it put me in? Because I was like, why is this on screen right now? But it's because of the autoplay. You know what it put me in? Uh, What? I'm in Death Note right now, the anime. Oh, Interesting. That is really weird that Hulu thought to send me to Death Note following prisoners. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, I've never seen that. I don't I don't know anything about it. Oh, you've never seen Death Note? Nope. It's a very that's that's a great one. That's a great recommendation for manga or the anime. I don't know about the movie, but oh no, this is this is a yeah, this is a this is a good anime to give some time one day. You or anybody who hears me. Oh no, it's a good yeah, one. I I struggle so much to commit to TV, but yeah, there's a long list of anime that I want to check out. I struggle to commit to anime. Hmm. Oh, but it was it was good chatting with you. And hopefully, uh, we'll talk again sometime soon, possibly about some more Bergman. You know, we've discussed that. So. Yeah, I had messaged Sean almost immediately. After I finished the movie the first time, and I said, oh my gosh, Caleb did it again. He just pulled a cracker out of his ass. Like, he just found this movie that nobody else has seen, even though it's not even that old. And it was amazing. And I was, you've done it before. I can't remember the last thing you did it with, but um, for my taste, but I don't know how you find these. Because there's like diamonds in the rough, but you find. You find diamonds in the rough, but you also find diamonds in plain sight, which is, I don't even know how, how that's even accomplished, but but there it is. Well, maybe maybe after our next Bergman, I'll pull out I Saw the Devil, and you'll find another one, because that movie is rocked my fucking socks when I saw it, so. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. Don't build it up too much, but we'll see. 
Sure. Well, yep, catch you guys in the next one, and peace.